Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Pearly Brewer, and I will be your host. Today's podcast guest is Spencer Beach. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you, Pearly. How are you today? Oh, not bad at all. I recently had the opportunity to hear Spencer at the WorkSafe NB's Annual Health and Safety Conference here in Fredericton. For anyone that has not had the opportunity, Spencer, I'll tell you folks, has a story that you must hear. This is why we reached out to him to see if he would be willing to do a podcast for us. Uh, I'm sure there were folks that didn't get to the conference or uh, didn't have the opportunity to hear a session. Uh, certainly, it's one that we want everyone to uh, to listen and to uh, understand. Here in New Brunswick every day, we crowd a bed and head off to work. Just another day in the job. We could almost be said that we simply could hit the repeat button. It's that basic. It's that repetitive. The same could not be said for Spencer, or the same, excuse me, the same could be said for Spencer until the day that his life turned tragic. What happened to him in reality could happen to any of us. Spencer, tell us about yourself prior to your injury. What was life like for Spencer Beach? Um, I've always been a kind of happy-go-lucky person. Uh, you know, I've, I've planned for the future, but I took each moment as it came. I'm a very hard worker. I started going to work when I was six years old with my dad, and I followed in his footsteps in the trades and became a flooring installer. Um, and when I jumped, when I graduated high school, I already knew the vast majority of what I was doing. So I jumped right into the trades and didn't take me very long to, to excel and advance and start running my own crew and, and, you know, um, making a name for myself in the industry. Uh, and I was the person that you could rely on and count on. Um, also on top of that though, I'm, I'm the type of guy that, when I was out with my friends, if I saw somebody who was down on their luck or not having fun, I would be the one to bring them in. I'd be like, come join us. Like, come and have fun with us. And, you know, I always looked out for that, uh, those individuals as well. And at the time, my incident, I was also married for four years. Uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. I had just bought my first house. It was like, uh, my life was falling into place and, uh, which is quite a unique, uh, thing to happen for me and the reason I say that is because in high school I did make a lot of mistakes uh, in grade nine I was a straight-a student but I didn't have a lot of friends and I had two older brothers so my older brothers were were my identity I really whatever they did I did and in grade 10 I decided you know I kind of want to be my own person and make my own friends and uh, I gave up on the schoolwork and I started to party and to um, smoke and drink and do drugs and um, and I became really really popular but I let my grades fall uh, and quite often when people ask me like what was the root cause of my incident I tell them the decisions I made in the summer of grade nine uh, because uh, in grade nine I had the entire world open to me I could have chosen to be any career uh, I was just uh, and then in, from my own choices in grade 10, I'd closed all those doors and I really left. The only door open was to follow in my dad's footsteps, which I really am. I'm never going to beat up the trades. I love doing what I did. I felt like I was an artist with my hands and be able to create. Uh, even to this day with all my disabilities, I still work really hard. I've developed my own basement. I've landscaped my yard. I'm right now building a fence. I love still working with tools and creating and taking this whole a pile of lumber and turning it into something. To me, that's just an amazing thing that people can have a talent to do. So 
And that gives you a little bit of idea of who I was. So what happened that tragic day for Spencer? So the tragic day for me was, um, honestly, I, I woke up in the morning and I had a feeling about a job I was going to be doing. Now, I would have been on this job for two days prior. And to give you a little bit of insight, about three years prior to my incident, and my incident was on April 24, 2003, three years prior to that, I had actually had a severe incident at the same employer where I broke both my ankles and a wrist because I fell about 13 feet and landed on concrete. When that incident happened, it put me into the service role within the organization, which basically meant that I drove around every day cleaning up other qualified installers' mistakes. And because I had a lifetime of experience in the trades, at the age of 29 when I was doing this, it was like I was very skilled and able to, to do these this role. Uh, but I, so the day before, two days before my incident, I was being sent into a special service and another crew installed the wrong color of vinyl flooring in the main level of a brand new home. And because I'm the service guy, it fell on my shoulders to get that job uh, back on schedule, the flooring torn up and, and ready for reinstallation. Whenever my dad taught me to remove vinyl flooring was the old way. You grab a scraper and you're going to go hard. It's going to take days of peeling the material up off of the floor. And, you know, it's a lot of elbow grease and a lot of sweat. Well, my employer had a method where you take a chemical. It was a contact thinner, really close to a paint thinner. And I'll skip a couple steps so nobody can copy what I did. But basically, you dump the, the thinner all over the floor. It would seep through the material, reactivate the glue, and the floor would peel up in sheets. What used to take days of two people working really hard, my employer had a service guy doing on his off time. It saved tons of time and loads of money. Unfortunately, it came with a side effect and it was explosive. And in the new home industry at that time, nobody believed in safety. So I didn't know what WEMIS was. I had never been, been trained in first aid, um, you know, fire extinguishers or, or first aid equipment that, that wasn't on site. Like there was zero when it came to safety. It was always about getting the job done, staying on schedule, moving people into their homes. And because of that, I had this belief that if I said something about that feeling I had in the morning to my employer that I was going to lose my job. I also didn't know I had the right to refuse unsafe work. So I took that feeling and that then I swallowed it deep down inside. Like who hasn't done that? Who hasn't ignored that gut feeling? And I went to work and it was about uh, four in the afternoon. I'd been working for about three hours and I was almost done for the day. So the, the fumes of the chemical were everywhere and uh, at four in the afternoon, the, the furnace came on, and when it turned on, it pulled all the fumes down the cold air return, ignited them, and then it shot the fumes back up, which then created a an explosion, and now I'm trapped in this fire. And that's uh, that, that's the incident. That's the, what led up to the fire starting. So tell us about what happened next. Well, the first thing you need to know is, um, the chemical, the fire burnt at the properties of the chemical, which was 1,500 degrees Celsius. The average house fire is about 700 degrees Celsius. So the fire I was in was so hot, firefighters in their full gear would not have entered because it was too hot for their, for them. And I, because I said, like, nobody followed safety, I didn't even know these things, 
Um, I had nothing on. Like, I was supposed to be wearing full fire-resistant coveralls, a self-enclosed breathing apparatus, and salt-resistant gloves. Instead, I was wearing a T-shirt, cut-off shorts, hiking shoes, and socks. So basically, I'm my entire body's being exposed to this 1,500 degrees Celsius. And when the fire started, I was right at the front door. I sprung up from my knees, and I grabbed onto the front door, and it didn't open. What ended up happening is just prior to the fire starting, there was a loud whistle. And that whistle was all the air being pulled into the house to feed the fire, which also created a pressure difference as it sealed the door shut. And I want you to imagine, like, I'm strong. I'm six foot two. Right now, I weigh 220 pounds. And back then, I was used to carrying, you know, big rolls of carpet and vinyl flooring and boxes of ceramic tiles and, and um, vinyl tiles and buckets of glue and toolboxes. I'm a strong man. And I didn't have the strength to break the seal of that vacuum that was being created from the air being pulled into the house. I had no clue what was happening, though. All I knew was just prior to this fire, these doors were opening fine, and now they're not opening at all. Well, so when this door didn't open, I just basically worked on instinct. I always tell people the time to plan for an incident is before it happens. Because if you don't have a plan, on an exit route on how you're going to get out, your only thoughts are, holy crap, i got to get the hell out of here. You just work purely on instinct. So I just let go of the door handle, and I turned to my right. I ran down the hallway. There was a half bathroom I passed, and I went into the laundry room, and that's where the garage entry was. Uh, and I tried the door at the garage entry, and then it didn't open. Um, and now I'm trapped. This laundry room is the only way out of it is the hallway I just ran down or the, the garage door that was not opening. So I let go of the the handle and I turned to my left and I ran back through the hallway past the half bathroom and into the front entry and went to the front door and I tried that door and it didn't open and you got to imagine like my hair is burning and I can smell it and there was a roar the howl of the fire was just intense and the heat was deep like I always say to everybody like we've all been burnt right like you've put something too hot in your mouth or you've put a curling iron on the side of your head or you've been around a campfire or smoking or whatever the case. You know, we've all been burnt in, in a minor way. It was nothing like that. The heat was intense. It was inside of me and I could feel it. And it was so hot that the energy within me was just being drained, just fighting to get out of this this fire. Um, and I could feel my clothes burning and melting to me. The one sensation that really, really stands out was how the skin on my face felt like it was shrinking as the heat, because that's what skin does when it burns, it shrinks, and I could feel it shrinking to my to my skull. And when this front door didn't open, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> I knew that if I didn't get out of this house soon, I was never getting out. So I let go of the door handle, and I ran back down the hallway, past the half bathroom, and into the laundry room. I grabbed onto that door handle, and I pulled as hard as I could, and the door didn't open. And now I'd had enough. I figure no more than 20 seconds transpired from when the fire started and me running down this hallway three times and trying two different doors twice. That I figure in those 20 seconds is what it took for everything to transpire. And at this point, I, I just wanted it over. 
Um, the, the pain was intense. The heat was too much. And my energy, my life was sapped from me. Uh, I let go of the door handle. I collapsed into a ball. I interlocked my fingers at the back of my head. There was a heat register just to the left of the door. And I put my face right over that heat register. And I gave up. Um, I had a near-death experience. I first, I thought of my wife, Tina, and uh, how she was pregnant with our first child. Uh, I thought about, you know, I, I was never going to hold my wife again or take her out for dinner or you know, tell her I loved her. I was never going to know if I had a boy or girl, what color their hair was going to be, if I was ever going to, you know, what their name would be. I was never going to play catch with them or or take him to school, or walk him down the aisle, or teach him to play sports, or, you know, I was going to miss everything. Uh, and I kind of look at this near-death experience as, it was a very surreal moment for me, but it also was a huge life lesson for me, uh, something that has gone with me for the rest of my life. Because I really look at it, like, when I was in that death experience on the verge of letting go of this life, I was focusing on all the things I had worth protecting, my wife and my little baby. And at the same time, I was also realizing how I failed to protect them. Um, I now come to see it as like, those were my last thoughts on this world. And if they're my last thoughts, they ultimately had to be my most important thoughts. And I, I really cherished learning what I learned in this near-death experience of what my most important thoughts were. And it's really easy because, you know, we wake up in the morning and we get consumed with the tasks of the day, you know, of uh, getting our jobs done, paying our bills, living up to our commitments, you know, all these things that we call stresses in life. And and they consume us. They They drive and dictate our days. And when I was dying, I can tell you I wasn't thinking of any of those things. I didn't care about the job. I didn't care about ever give about my paycheck. I didn't care about paying my bills. I didn't care about anything. All I cared about was my wife and my unborn child. I'm very thankful to have that experience because I've shared it with so many people because we get so consumed with our days um, and we forget about what's most important. So I measure now from this near-death experience, it's taught me that the value of every day is if at the end of the day my family is happy, healthy, and safe, I had a real good day. Um, unfortunately, I had to almost die to figure out what was my last thoughts, my most important thoughts. Uh, but when my, it ultimately was the thoughts of my wife and my unborn child that uh, gave me the strength to get up from my, my knees and I grabbed onto that, the, the laundry room door handle and I pulled with all my strength and the door opened. Um, what ended up happening was it was a flash fire. So the fumes were all burning. But it was a limited fuel source. No one was adding more chemical to the to the fire. So within like 20, 25 seconds, the fumes were already dissipating. The pressure difference was reducing, and I now had the ability to open up the door. When I opened up the door, I could see right through the garage. The overhead door wasn't installed yet, and I didn't hesitate. I just leaped into the garage. Well, when I jumped into the garage, that's where we were told by the home builder to throw our garbage. So on, this is construction garbage, right? This is two by fours and nails and screws and siding and shingles and all the flooring I just removed over three days. 
wrapped into beautiful little garbage bags. So none of the chemical was evaporating. And as soon as I hit that garbage pile, I'm on fire now. So my burning body started the second fire. Um, but I didn't care. Honestly, I could see the sun. My escape was 20 feet away from me. I just rebounded. I sprung right back up to my feet and I ran out of the garage as fast as I could, burning from head to toe. I made it almost to the street before I collapsed onto my back and um, there was uh, tradespeople all around. They were, um, it was in a cul-de-sac, so there was other homes being built and when they heard the explosion, everyone came running obviously to see what was going on. So I collapsed onto the ground and all these tradespeople gathered around me and uh, yeah, that's what happened. So what happened next on the street? Um, so I don't honestly ever get to really share what happened on the street when I'm talking to in my groups. But um, what happened to so the tradespeople, nine calls went out to 911 and the they were trying to get instructions from 911 at the same time as well. This is the new home industry. So this is a brand new street. It wasn't on the city maps yet. So they were trying to pinpoint where exactly and precisely I was because they didn't have an actual address to go by. Um, and then this lady came out of nowhere and she kind of like pushed people out of the way. Um, she was an off-duty nurse and she heard the explosion. She came running from her house and she came and like pushed everybody out of the way. And I'm so thankful for this lady. I would honestly don't know her. I don't know her name. I've never met her again, but if I ever did, I'd give her the biggest hug because her experience kicked in and she went into her professional mode and she tried to keep me calm. She found that I was married and had a baby on the way. She tried to have me focus on those things. And I was just screaming at the crowd. Like my life was over. Um, I was asking the nurse if my nose and ears were there. I could have looked like, obviously I couldn't look at my nose and ears, but I could have looked at my body and seen the damage, but I was too afraid. I didn't want to see it. And all my clothes were burnt off of me, so I was pretty much naked. The only thing left on me was uh, articles of leather, which was my leather belt, my work pouch, my knee pads, and my hiking shoes. Uh, short of, and those are the places where my body's not burnt. Everything else has been burned, but you know, short of the, that, those little pieces of leather, um, that's what saved any skin I have. And then um, the ambulance came. It was a little bit longer. It took 11 minutes for the ambulance to get me. They ended up having to follow the smoke from the house to to find me. And when they came, they actually, because it was a cul-de-sac, they uh, came over the catwalk because they didn't know how to quite get into the area. And uh, when they came over the catwalk, the paramedic came out of the front door and kneeled down beside me. And that's the first time I knew how bad it was. Um, that look, I don't know if Paramac was a boy or girl, no clue. I don't know what color hair they had. I don't remember the clothing they were wearing, like what color it was. I don't remember anything about that paramedic. All I remember was that look that they gave me, like the eye contact we made. Uh, it communicated to me like, holy, you are not going to make it. And that expression was of that paramedic's look was just permanently etched into my memory. Um, yeah. So then they loaded me into the ambulance. Um, and it was really weird because I'm a tradesperson and I'm living in the city of Edmonton. So it's like a million, 1.1 million people. It's a big city. 
But because I'm a service or a tradesperson, I'm used to driving the roads at Edmonton. Uh, so I knew the entire time I'm lying down in this ambulance, looking out the back of the ambulance. And every time we took a corner, I knew exactly what street we were on. And yet I kept on having the paramedic reaffirm how far away from the hospital we were. Um, and he kept a running tally. It started at about 10 minutes and then to seven and five minutes and two minutes. And he kept this tally down till he said 30 seconds. Once he said 30 seconds, uh, I blacked out. I felt a bump going into the ambulance bay at the university hospital and, uh, and then I blacked out. Um, they wheeled me out of the, the ambulance and into the emergency room. Uh, and this is when my wife was already there. She was filling out the forms to admit me. Um, and she didn't think it was that bad when she was told to go to the hospital. Because we didn't have safety on our crew or in our industry. So she was used to incidences happening all the time with our group, right? Like uh, we'd have two or three hospital medical incidences per year because we didn't follow safety or we weren't expressed to follow safety. So she didn't think it was that bad. It wasn't until she heard the charge nurse in the emergency room say the, the severe burn is here that it sunk in, that this was bad. Uh, and then they wheeled me right past her. I was covered head to toe in a sheet. She said my right arm was hanging out and that it looked fine. Um, and then they took me, and I can only imagine, um, you know, you hear people, they would, when they push back, you know, the tradespeople, the craft, the employees, and um, I've heard it before my incident, I've heard it after my incident, but people will say, you know, my safety is just about me. If I get hurt, it affects nobody but me. What I found out was uh, when I got hurt, it affected everybody I loved. And it was such such a fast effect on them that my wife actually beat me to the hospital. And her mental health and the journey she went on started that moment she heard the charge nurse say, the severe burn is here. That's when she knew her life was affected forever. And then she got to follow that up with, with seeing me being wheeled right past her, covered head to toe in a sheet. Now, I can't speak for you, but when, thanks to TV and movies and that, whenever I think of somebody covered head to toe in a sheet in, an, in a hospital setting, it usually means they're no longer with us. That was the first view my wife got, was her husband was no longer with her. The reality was is they were covering me to protect the public from seeing this incident, from seeing my injuries. They, they were that severe. Um, and they they wheeled me right past my wife and into a private room. Um, there was already a medical staff waiting there. And in Edmonton, we have the best burn unit in Canada. So I always say to people, it's like this, the medical staff was the entire burn unit. It was the doctors, the nurses, the charge nurses, the dietitians, the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, the psychologists, you name it. They were all there to assess me because the injury was that severe. It was going to take this entire team, if I survived, to help me. These people's time, especially this doctor, we have like the best doctor in Canada for what he does. His time is not easy to get. And he's waiting for me. That's how bad it was. All because I didn't listen to my gut. Because I, I, I was in an industry that didn't believe in safety. It believed in time and money and uh, not people. 
you know, uh, that's literally this doctor was waiting for me. It was that bad. So what happened next? Um, the doctor stepped out of the crowd. He introduced himself as Dr. Tredgett and told me I was in the best burn unit in Canada. Uh, he then asked me how I was burned. I didn't understand the question. Um, I didn't at the time realize that there was multiple ways to be burned. So some of them are more of the most common ways to be burned at work is electrical. Um, and I've seen a lot of electrical burns. But uh, there, so he asked a couple more questions. So I, my answer to him when he asked how I was burned was, uh, I told him I was burned in a fire. Um, I gave him that 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 answer for two reasons. The first was because I didn't understand the question, so I just told him, you know, like the obvious answer: I'm burned in a fire. But the second is is um, and guys, I've had this conversation with many men. Um, I'm unsure if it happens with women or not because I've never really been in that scenario, but. Um, I know with like me and my friends when we were growing up and we'd be doing stupid things and someone would get hurt, the very first thing we'd try and do is get him to laugh. You know, we'd try and make him laugh. And I realized I was trying to get the doctor to laugh. And the reason being, and I've come to realize this, that the reason we try and get our friends to laugh when they get injured is because if they laugh, it's not that bad. We got away with it. We'll be okay. And that's what I was trying to do. If I could get this doctor to laugh, it's not that bad. I'll be going home. He didn't think I was very funny. Um, so he asked a couple more questions. What were you doing? What were you working with? And found out I was a chemical and what I was doing. And uh, so it was a chemical fire. Uh, the reason that was important is because when you lose your skin, and that's what happens in a fire is you lose your skin, um, and so you, but that skin, it does a lot of things for us. And one of them is it stops things from getting into our bodies. So when I lost my skin, um, that chemical, not only did they have to treat the burns, but they also had to possibly treat that chemical now entering my body because I no longer had that barrier to stop the, the chemical from entering. Um, after you found out it was a chemical fire, it was my turn to start asking questions. The first question I asked them was how bad was it? As I said, I could have looked at any time. I was naked, but I was too afraid. And um, so he just calmly looked me up and down. And he then told me I had third and fourth degree burns to 90% of my body. What I found profound about that is many months later, when they did the official assessment, I have third and fourth degree burns to 87% of my body. He missed it by 3%. Now you realize like people are like, ah, it's not going to happen to me or I can ignore my gut feeling or, you know, I don't need to fill out these forms. I don't need to follow these policies. I don't need to attend that safety meeting. Like we put safety off to a second, second thing in our life. We're always so busy about trying to complete things, but it happens so often to people are getting injured that these doctors have been given the opportunity to diagnose on the spot. They are so good at it that he missed my injury by 3%. That is how often it happens to people of them getting injured and doctors having to diagnose and how good they are at diagnosing that uh, if you think it can't happen to you, the reality is, is it happens so often. Those doctors are experts at diagnosing on the spot. Um, after he told me I had third and fourth degree burns to 90% of my body, honestly, I didn't, uh, I'd never heard of a fourth degree burn. I couldn't tell you what a third degree burn was, but I had heard of it. 
So I, and like, I didn't know really what any of that meant. So I asked him, I'm like, what does that mean? Well, he's, he summed it up in a real good way. He then told me I had 5% chance to live. I've now come to realize that um, I shouldn't even be here. Um, I've, there's been so many other burn survivors, well, burn victims who have not survived burns way less than mine. Um, the reality is, though, he had to give me a number. He had to give me something to hold on to, but he had to make it realistic. So he made the number really small, 5%. Um, and then he gave me the option to live or die. Uh, the reality is, is his experience, and I have met these people also myself now, um, that it, this is not an easy life. Going, And I'm not talking of going through a severe burn. Having your life change from an incident or an injury is not an easy life. Um, and it's hard. You've got to adapt who you are. And in the process of healing, you're going to get angry and you're going to push people out of your lives and you're going to turn to addictions. You're going to, like, you cope. It's all a natural process. But in that process of living, of surviving, of coping, sometimes it destroys us and our quality of life becomes really, really small. So the doctor, um, also on top of that, because I had such a small chance to live, that it was gonna, I was going to take a lot of energy and resources from the burn unit, um, and they didn't know if it was worth it, if it would be worth devoting all those resources to me on such a small chance to live, with the extreme likelihood that if I did survive, my quality of life would be so poor, it might not be worth letting me live. Uh, the only reason I'm told I was given the option to live or die was because my wife was pregnant. I don't know what came over me outside of the house. I was screaming my life was over in the ambulance. I was begging the paramedics to give me too much medication. I didn't want to make it to the hospital. I didn't want my wife to see me like this. And now I have this this option to, to die. I can I can eat my cake. I guess I must have stopped thinking about me. And started thinking about what was most important again. Because my, my exact words were, were, I don't care. Do what it takes. I don't want to die. I can tell you 100% without a doubt, I had no clue what that decision was going to mean for me or my wife or my child or the rest of my family. All I can tell you is I chose a direction that day. That's all I did. I chose to fight. Um, after I chose to fight, they then allowed my wife and mother into the room. I don't remember my mom being there at all. I just focused on Tina. Uh, it was literally they were coming in to say their goodbyes. I told Tina when I saw her to cancel our savings how much my next paycheck was worth when it was due. Uh, I forgot to tell her I loved her, which I, I know I was in a way telling her I loved her, but... I really feel like those three simple words would have probably meant a lot for her. Uh, you know, to say, you know, you meant a lot to me. You know, and you're, the time I had on this world with you were, were the best years of my life. But I, I, I don't know, I just forgot to tell her that. I was so consumed with trying to take care of her and the baby. Um, and I'm the sole income provider, so they, you know, this was their money. I had no clue what workers' compensation was how I was going to help my family or any of that. So, like, I figured this was their last paycheck. Um, they gave Tina a chance to touch me. Uh, she touched me on the top of my forehead. 
and it was like a nonverbal way of of her saying goodbye. And that was it. Like literally, we weren't even given more than five minutes to say our goodbyes. It was so important for them to start working on me and get me into surgery and taking this burnt tissue off and starting the healing process that uh, we weren't given any more than five minutes to to say our goodbyes. Uh, and yeah, so and then they ushered my family out of my room. My two older brothers, when I said, you know, the fact that everybody I loved, my, my brothers were already at the hospital now with their wives. And my two older brothers, they came to see me. They didn't come into the room. They just looked through the window. My oldest brother went home and drank himself stupid in the garage for about a month before he picked himself up. Uh, my middle brother is still an alcoholic to this day. Uh, the damage my incident did on my two brothers is phenomenal my dad was also there he didn't come to see me which i would totally respect uh, when his mom passed away he was a young man and uh, he went to see his mom on her deathbed and he even before the fire i knew this story and he always said he regretted seeing his mom before she passed away because he's his memory of his mom has always been that frail lady on her deathbed and he didn't want to remember her like that so he chose not to come and see me because he didn't want to remember his little son that he took to work when he was six years old and brought up in the trades and was proud of everything I'd become and accomplished and followed in his footsteps. He didn't rem- want to remember that strong, able body, independent, go-getting young son of his as now this burn survivor. Um, and at this point, I'm 100% behind it because... The damage to me is done. It's his mental health that is more important at this point. Um, and then, yeah, that's, they took me in after Tina, after everyone had their chance to say their goodbyes. They put me into a coma, and uh, that was the start of my healing. The process of healing. Uh, in your book, you describe it in a lot of detail. You talk about the difficulty from uh, simple things uh, like even communicating. In the initial stages, tell us tell us about that. Well, everyone's journey is different, and everyone's journey is the same. So your physical journey is going to be completely different. Every injury is different, hundred percent, and because of that your process of healing is going to be unique for that injury. But there's a very similar process too, and I do a lot of mentoring of people who have been. Um, severely had their lives changed. That's what I call it. When you're in the emergency room and you get that diagnosis, it doesn't matter what the doctor tells you. What he's really saying is this. Your life changed really fast. And that's the start of the healing process, especially the mental health. And it takes a long time to comprehend and decompress what that means by your life changing really fast. So when I came out of a coma, um, I remember everything. And even in a coma, I remember all my dreams. So when I came out of a coma, I had a tube in my mouth. My left lung was collapsed. Both my lungs were severely burned. Um, and, you know, so I, the tube was helping me breathe. But it also stopped me from talking. And I'm severely underweight. I went from 100 or 220 pounds down to 112 pounds, completely immobile. Um, there wasn't even a mirror in my room because they wouldn't allow me to see myself. They didn't want uh, to encourage any kind of depression that I was already going to go through. So, and I came out of a coma, and the very first emotion was the anger. Like, I knew where I was, and I understood why I was there, but 
Um, at first, it made sense, but really quickly, it boiled down to where it, it consumed me. And what ended up happening was I played this game, the why me game in my head. I believe why me is like the third most common asked question in the world. First question that we all said today is, hey, how you doing? Uh, second question that we'll let people ask is usually what's for dinner? But why me is such a common question. I don't know a single person in this world that's never been had a down day and been like, well, why does my life have to be like this? Why does this have to happen to me? Right. And um that why me, though, it's like it's an anchor and it holds you to the past. It holds you to the event that occurred that you don't like. And that anchor is what creates then that mental journey. Because you get, you, you look for answers. You're like, why did my life have to change? What was I doing so wrong that day when you think about it, Pearly? Like I was trying to clean up another person's mistake. I was trying to put a house back on schedule. I was trying to make my employer look good and save face for the home builder. I was trying to provide for my family. Like what was I doing so wrong that day that I deserve to go through this horrible fire? And because of that, I was looking for answers that didn't exist. And uh, because they didn't exist, and I just played it over and over again, like, why me, why me, why me, that uh, it boiled down to anger. And then the anger turned to depression, and the depression then led to anxiety, and oh, I can't believe how fast this happened, but then all of a sudden I was suicidal. You know, that when that doctor gave me the option to live or die, knowing the the small likelihood of me actually having any quality of life after um, he knew exactly what the hell he was talking about because it less than 30 days of being conscious and I was already contemplating how I could kill myself. Um, I didn't like anything I saw and I am not, I want to be very clear about this. I am not a suicidal person. I have never in my life contemplated the depths of how I could kill myself. Yet I now know that there are real factors in this world that will get me to, that can put me there. Um, and so it, it was horrible. And I just looked at it like when I was in this process. Um, first of all, the anger was completely normal. It's a, a emotion I had to go through. But I look at anger as it's like, it's like filling up a balloon full of air. If you put too much air into a balloon, it's going to explode. And if you put too much anger into you, you're eventually going to explode. They're what, they're what I call anger explosions. And those anger explosions, what ends up happening is the people that see the explosions are your loved ones. They're the ones in the room that, uh, that when you can't take it, they're the ones that get to experience the words or the actions of what your anger causes. And as I said, anger is a natural emotion. It has to happen. The problem is, is the way we release that anger is where it's very harmful. And it's those anger explosions that chase people out of our lives. So whenever I mentor people, uh, and I've mentored a lot of them, that is like where I start. Is I'm like, let's control your anger. Let's get that under control because your loved ones are there to support you. And if you don't control your anger, there's a real good chance you're going to chase them out of your life. And, and that's the worst outcome possible. You know, I don't ever consider a success story of bringing someone through an injury and rebuilding their life and helping them get back to to going where they're going, but in the process they lose, they lose their family. I don't consider that a success at all. The only success after an incident that 
we can truly say that success, success is if we keep the family together uh, at the same time as rebuilding the person's life. So then, yeah, I was suicidal. I used to play a game in my head. It was, if I could kill myself, how would I do it? Uh, I don't know how many times I asked that question. And because I was completely immobile and severely underweight, I couldn't, there was no way. I, I, I was forced to live in this deep, dark, angry, depressed, anxious, suicidal life. And uh, it was horrible. It, it consumed the hell out of me. And then, uh, and literally, I needed a miracle to break me out of that. Um, because I was getting stronger, slowly. And eventually, if I would have got to the point where, you know, I was able to start moving and grabbing onto knives or pills or you name it, uh, then I'd have the chance to maybe act on those thoughts. But at this time, I didn't have any chance to act on those thoughts. Uh, I was thankful. Honestly, I look back at it now because I'm that I was immobile. I was so thankful that I was because where I was was so dark um, that I, I'd never want to go back there again. Uh, and which is weird because I do say to people that um, I wouldn't change what happened to me. Uh, honestly, I, I, I love who I am and what I've become. And if anyone could send me back in time and give me a do-over, I wouldn't accept it. I would gladly go through all this again if I could have this outcome. But the only part that I would regret wanting to go through again is this darkness. Because it, it, I, there was parts of me I didn't know existed in this darkness. Um, so what ended up breaking me out of this darkness, though, was uh, a miracle did happen. And it came on September 28th, 2003. Uh, that was when my daughter was born. And when she was born, I had this magical ability. I could take anything positive and make it negative at this time. So it was about four in the afternoon. My father-in-law burst into my room, told me, sorry, four in the morning. My father-in-law burst into my room, told me Tina was in labor. And I, I was very happy, but I also took that positive moment and turned it negative. I'm like, well, that's great, but I'm in the wrong hospital, and I'm useless. I'm supposed to be there for my my wife. I'm supposed to be the first one to hold my daughter. I'm this like I'm supposed to be the dad, and I'm not. You know, I took all this positive news and turned it around and made it about me and made it negative. Um, the Tina gave birth really fast. Uh, the hospital aligned. Uh, they had a prearranged that we were going to do a conference call. Um, while she was giving birth, which didn't happen because she gave birth at home. Uh, she gave, gave birth really fast. But they took, the ambulance took Tina to the Misericordia Hospital. I'm in the, in the university hospital and we had a conference call. It was about seven in the morning and she was exhausted. So was I. I was on so much medication and my body was consuming itself for energy. Um, healing is a very tiring thing. Um, and so we didn't talk very long. I just, you know, she was healthy. The baby was healthy. That's all I needed to know. And, um, you know, we, um, then the next day they checked out Tina and the baby. They both were fine and they released them from the hospital. And this is where I find the, how strong my wife is. Cause I'm, I'm just a man. Never been pregnant to give him birth, but my understanding is it's not an easy thing to do. And it's very exhausting and draining. So you'd think that getting released from the hospital, the first thing any woman would want to do is go and get some rest and start the healing process. But not Tina. 
the very first thing she wanted to do was to try and break me out of that darkness. Um, so she jumped into the minivan. My father-in-law drove over to the university hospital, and she brought my little baby girl to come and see me. That was the very first thing they did when they left the hospital. Tan to my room, you had to put on the stale garments and wash your hands. So Tina always looked like a big giant banana. Anyone who entered my room looked like a big giant banana. They had yellow um, sterile garments, uh, gowns on, gloves, a mask, and a hat. And then they don't make little baby sterile garments, but so they put uh, Amber into a sterile pillowcase and Tina brought into my room and um, she, I was weak, like really weak and had very little movement. So I couldn't, there was no way I could help my daughter. So Tina raised the railing of the bed up and she patted the blanket and then laid Amber on the, in the right crevice of my arm. Uh, when Amber, that's the name of our daughter, when Amber laid there, um, I looked at her hair, which was blonde, my hair. And I know it's my hair because uh, um, Tina's hair color is blonde as well, but she pays for that. <laughs> so it's like I knew it was my hair and she had a nose, which I had lost at the time. Uh, she had all her fingers, which mine were all amputated. She had all these beautiful little toes. She had perfect skin. And I looked at this little girl lying in my arms, and that came from me and had everything I lost. And as I started out, this whole podcast was like, you know, I've made mistakes in life. In grade nine, I made some big mistakes and chose some paths that were not the wisest, and it put me down some some paths that were harder than I needed to have in life. And... You know, I didn't listen to myself and, uh, the concerns I had when I got severely injured out of it. You know, I made a lot of mistakes in life and here's this little baby girl and she has a fresh start. She had everything I lost and all she needed for that fresh start was a mom and a dad. Uh, and honestly, when I looked at her, I saw she had a mom. That was no question at all. Tina was not going anywhere, but she didn't have a dad. That dad was in a dark place. And uh, when I held my daughter, I saw light. I saw hope that day. Um, it didn't last really very long. It's hard to hold on to that hope. But what ended up happening was uh, a new direction had occurred. Instead of me wallowing in misery, I decided I was going to see where this could take me. Uh, and I, I'm very thankful for the birth of my daughter and the support of my wife. I always say to people that, you know, we started out this about the mental health and where, uh, you know, how hard it is, the healing journey. Um, you can't heal on your own. It's impossible. Uh, you need your family and your loved ones in your life to support you and to guide you and to sometimes make decisions for you and to do things to that you used to be able to do for you temporarily, sometimes permanently, to help you with these things. And if you push them out of your life, the likelihood of you getting better is extremely limited. Uh, and uh, that's, I'm so thankful that my wife never left me and that uh, little baby girl broke my depression because uh, without them, I wouldn't be here today. I can promise you that. When I read your book, uh, one of many things that stood out was the support and how strong Tina was through the whole situation, through the whole healing process. Uh, Simply remarkable, the support that she provided to you day in and day out. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> well, so Tina's support was amazing. Um, both of us, though, were stumbling through the dark, to be honest. There was no 
rule book, no guidebook to take you through how to support someone and, or an injured person on how to hold on to support and accept it. It's, um, but so we stumbled through the dark, but a lot of it came down to was just a pure commitment to, to each other. Um, there was a uh, many moments in our, in this journey where we grabbed onto each other instead of pushed each other away. Uh, and there were times I did try and push Tina away. Um, I'll give you a good example and of how I was being stupid and how strong she was. Uh, on our fifth wedding anniversary happened two months into my story. That was also the day when they pulled the ventilator. Uh, and I had no clue this was going to happen. The doctor walked in in the morning with the charge nurse and the respiratory therapist, and they told me they're going to pull a ventilator, which I think the doctors could have improved on because they didn't prepare me uh, for it. So I was extremely afraid of what was going to happen. And I had tried whenever they disconnected the ventilator to take me to surgery. Um, I couldn't breathe, but I tried. And like I'm like, well, what happens if I can't breathe? Like, what are you going to do, right? So they pulled the ventilator and, um, the doctor asked me to take a deep breath, which I did. It was more of a sigh of relief than anything that the doctor knew what the hell he was talking about. And then he's asked me to say a few words. My exact words, my first words out of have from having this ventilator pulled after two months of saying nothing was, what do you want me to say? Those were my exact words. I wasn't trying to be sarcastic or mean in any way, but for two months, I remembered not telling Tina I loved her in the emergency room and I had a very very weak voice when they pulled the ventilator so I wasn't going to let that little weak voice be wasted on that doctor and Tina came to see me every single day and I was going to hold on to that voice all day long so I could give her those three simple words because uh, she deserved to hear them when she did come and see me um, remember this is our first, fifth wedding anniversary um, she, that's what she got. Uh, she walked into my room and I let out the loudest whisper I could muster and I told her I loved her. We celebrated. She had apple juice because she was pregnant and I got to suck on an ice cube because I had to learn how to swallow again. But, uh, three days later she came into my room and, um, I told her the exact words that why me beat me up. It took a hold of me again. And uh, she came into my room and I was like, this is not the man you married. You can take everything and go. I'll completely understand. She didn't even hesitate. She looked at me with this like confused look and like she said to me, you're a stupid man. Never say those words again. Um, that's like she just knew what to say at the right times. Right. Um, and she was reassuring me that she wasn't going anywhere um i was blind back then not like physically blind but emotionally blind i didn't see tina then honestly I, I saw her coming but i didn't see the devotion and commitment she had to me at that time when Amber was born is when i was really um when i i saw her devotion and commitment that's when i grabbed on to my family and i uh, started to let them help me and i think that's a big step is you need to let your family help you, uh, but it's so hard to accept help. And she offered it, you know, so this is like Tina's side of it. She kept on everything. She offered help in every single way uh, from emotional and spiritual and mental and physical support. You name it, she helped me with it. But uh, if I didn't accept it, and quite often it's so hard to accept, you know, that that's where we stumble 
uh, in the recovery process is nobody wants to feel dependent, you know, especially when it comes to something like putting on your own socks that you should be able to do yourself, right? Or, or getting a glass out of the dishwasher or, you know, you, you need to lean on people these temporary times. And that's the strength that these, that our loved ones offer us. Um, is they're there for us to lean on and she was there for me to lean on, but, um, I didn't want to lean. I didn't, I, I'm, I'm an able body person in my mind. Just at this time, I'm not. So that was one story. Um, another story I'll give you is, uh, she literally saved my life. Uh, it was the seventh day into a coma. Um, and as I said, I remember all my dreams and, all my dreams were the same. I was always cold. I was helpless. I was alone. I was hungry. They're all the same. Those things always fit into every one of my dreams because they describe my reality. I was cold because I lost the fatty tissue underneath my skin, which controls your body temperature. So I was cold. I was helpless. I was completely immobile when I came out of a coma. I was helpless. I was alone. I was in isolation. I was alone. And I was hungry. My body was consuming itself to to find energy. They couldn't feed me enough in a day. I needed that much energy. I was always hungry. And there was one dream where I was going to die. It's the only dream I had I was going to die. And there was this big moon. There was a big space battle happened. And the battle was done. And all the debris of the ships were all flying in the sky. And there was this moon. And in the moon was a crater. And in that crater was a cave. And in that cave was me. And I was alone, cold, helpless, and hungry. And and I knew that if I didn't get off this moon, I was going to die. Because there's nothing on a moon to support life. And everyone had left. The battle was done. I was abandoned. And uh, I knew I was going to die. Uh, and then this big ship came out of nowhere. It hovered over the crater and uh, picked me up and took me off to safety in the dream ends. What I, Tina wrote journals, three of them actually, of my entire journey and her journey. And I asked her permission to read those, uh, and she gave them to me. And when I got to the seventh day of my coma, it correlated with this dream. That was the day Tina came to the hospital and the doctors told her I was going to die. Uh, they said that my lungs pretty much stopped producing oxygen. Uh, because they were so severely burned that there was a very highly high chance I wasn't going to survive the night. And if I did survive the night, they said I was going to deal with probably some kind of mental health um, or brain damage because of lack of oxygen. That's the only time in the entire journal, all of those journals, that she wrote that and how close I was to death was the seventh day. And when she was told by the doctors that I was going to die... And then to go say her goodbyes. She went into the isolation room. She washed her hands and put on all those yellow garments, those sterile garments. And she came into my room and she gave me every reason I had worth fighting for. And at the very end, she told me that if I had to go, she'd completely understand. That's what her journal wrote. And when I read those words and she came into my room and gave me everything I had worth fighting for, I was like, you were that ship. You were that ship that came into my dream and took me off to safety. You were the one that gave me hope when I was ready to let go. But what I found very phenomenal, very striking about her strength was those words at the end. If you had to go, I'll completely understand. Uh, she left it to me. She knew it wasn't going to be easy. And the journey ahead of us was hard if I was to survive. 
And uh, she also knew that it might be too much for me. So she didn't put pressure on me. She didn't say, fight, I can't let go of you. She, she didn't do that. She, she thought of me first and what was best for me. And she let me make those decisions, even in a coma, which um, that's, that's her strength, right? Is um, She was willing to take this and carry it herself if it was too much for me. Um, so, and she saved my life. Yeah. When a lot of people think about workplace injuries, they, they think of a recovery of, of, you know, a few weeks or maybe even a few months. Yeah. How long was your recovery as such? Just to sort of skip down the road here. All right. Well, there's not one answer to that. So 20 seconds in a fire, uh, 20 minutes to the ambulance, to the hospital, um, 45 minutes, I'm in a coma. Six weeks, I'm coming out of a coma. Then uh, nine months, I'm in the university hospital in isolation. I had my first 24 surgeries. Uh, after that, five more months at the Glen Rose Hospital, had maybe another half a dozen surgeries. I actually was released from the Glen Rose Hospital 14 months to the day of my incident. Uh, and then two years of outpatient therapy after that. Then I was in and out of the hospital and therapy for the next two years while recovering and going back to work or retraining to go back to work, which was my choice. I was retired the day I was injured, but um, I chose to go back to work, and that's when I stumbled into the safety field and became the advocate for safety I am today. But I would literally, it literally took five years until I got a paycheck again. Um, it was a long, long road. And even to this day, like the burns are going to follow me for the, till the, till I die. Um, I have now achieved 39 surgeries. I don't even know how many more surgeries I have to go through. All I know is that for my entire life, I will continue to go for surgeries probably every three or four years is where it's at now. It might progress as I get older that the surgeries will become closer and closer. But yeah, for my recovery is a lifetime journey, but the first five years is really uh, what it took to get me back to being a functional person in society again. So where's Spencer's life at today? Where am I at today? Well, now I've been uh, being a motivational speaker and safety advocate and speaker on safety for about uh, coming on to 18 years now. Um, I've done over 2,000 presentations. I don't know how many people I've reached out to. Um, so that's like my number one thing is uh, supporting my family is a big thing. And I do it now by sharing my story and helping people see um, safety in a new light. Uh, my focus when I speak to audiences on safety is I talk to people's behaviors. And in this podcast, if I've touched onto your heart, that's my trick is I use my story to open your heart. And when your heart's open, I then go and plant some safety messages and um, help you to see safety in a way that I didn't at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to send men and women, husbands and fathers, uh, wives and uh, home to their families. Uh, that's my passion is, is doing that. I do a lot also. I don't do as much speaking on um, motivating. And that's mostly because a lot of companies don't have budgets for that kind of stuff. But I do love speaking and I'm, I've shared more than one thing in this podcast on motivating and, you know, most important thoughts, uh, to, you know, holding on to loved ones, what anger is like and how to deal with it. Um, you know, there's many messages I have on that. Um, I've walked a lot of young people through suicide. They've reached out to me in the, in social media channels and, um, and so I, and whenever I do get someone who's in this, 
I do a lot of mentoring, a lot. I'm walking right now a, a gentleman through a severe burn of his own, and uh, he's doing good, but his journey's young, and he's still got time to go. So, you know, I'll be there. I always find, though, that um, people, they, they come and they use me. They take me for as long as they need me, and then they, you know, once they get to that point, they're, uh, they go on to their life, and that's cool. And, you know, uh, so our relationship kind of ends then at that point. But, you know, I, I did my part, and they're, they're now back to life. I have a huge belief in wanting to help other people um, recover and get back to life. I volunteer a lot. I uh, I sit on the board of the Empton Firefighter Burn Treatment Society, and the whole point is the that society works on helping burn survivors with uh, prevention and then treatment and then care after the burn. So we do everything from helping to bring in equipment, um, like very expensive equipment that doctors have on their wish list for the burn unit to keep our burn unit the number one in Canada. And um, as far as uh, every year, we fully fund burn camp for children who are burned and uh, they they will fly children from Northwest Territories, northern Saskatchewan, northern BC, and all of Alberta, and they gather them every year fully funded. It's uh, about $80,000 that they spend just to send kids to camp for one week out of the year that are going, that have these severe scars and injuries. And for one week of the year, they can just be a kid and be surrounded by their peers and, and grow in their burns together and, uh, you know, um, have ritual lives. So I do a lot of passion on that. Um, coming up, we're just starting, actually, as soon as August ends, we start planning Burn Awareness Week, which is the first full week of February. And I shut down my business, and because schools don't have budgets for speakers, so I found a way to bridge that, and I raise funds for uh, burn research. That goes to the Firefighter Burn Treatment Society, but me and another burn survivor, we go and we speak to 10 schools over five days, and we do it for free. We're just looking for donations and uh, sponsorships and whatnot. And uh, we're trying to, so we send out these positive messages on not only burn awareness and safety and fire safety, but also self-esteem and how we deal with the burns and overcoming hardships so that we give some tools to these children. Um, because when you look like burn survivors do, and you can hold your head up high and be proud of who you are, we might know a thing or two about self-esteem. Where This is the time when children struggle with that, so let's share these tools. And we give it for free. It's like we're just trying to raise research and make the next person, raise money for research and make that next journey easy for the next person. Uh, and then on top of that, I'm, I just love to live. You'll quite often see me out in society, and I love to golf. I love to ski. I love to hang out with my kids and my family. Um, we just came back from Halifax on a week-long trip. We're now planning a trip to Hawaii. Uh, you know, I just I love to just get out and live. Uh, what's one thing the fire has really taught me in the recovery is to appreciate that we don't live to work, you know. And there does come a time when you got to realize that, yeah, it's time to live. I'm done with work for the day. It's time to live. So that's a little bit of who I am now. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for being with us today, Spencer. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Spencer also has a book. It's called In Case of Fire, Please Remain Calm, Then Slowly Rebuild Your Life. If you have an opportunity, get out and get a copy of the book. Uh, when I heard Spencer uh, present here in Fredericton, uh, I bought a copy of the book and I read it through. It is just an unbelievable story of courage. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a book that everyone should read. There are so many good messages in it.
You can order Spencer's book at spencerspeaks.ca. That's spencerspeaks.ca. Again, thank you very much, Spencer, for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, keep doing all the good things you're doing. Keep spreading all the messages that you're spreading. And uh, we'll look forward to, I'm sure, seeing you at some point in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you.